morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge April Wood, and I'm presiding over this session. And to my right is Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my left is Judge Michael Statting. We are also assisted today by our marshal, uh, Mr. Richard Romyard, as well as our clerk, Ms. Delena McKetsey. And the matter before us today is the state of North Carolina versus Luis Fernando Saldana. And if counsel is ready, we will go ahead and begin and we'll hear from the appellate first. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Heidi Reiner. I'm here from the Office of the Appellate Defender um, with the Appellate Defender Glenn Girding to my right. Despite the law's general affinity for finality, plea withdrawals are allowed in certain circumstances, and this is one of those cases. Mr. Saldana entered a plea at, at issue here in 2005. As a preliminary matter, would you like to reserve any time for rebuttal? I apologize. I would like to reserve 10 minutes. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes. He entered this plea in 2005, one month after he was indicted. And he did so with the understanding that his record would be wiped clean if he successfully completed the terms of the um, agreement he entered pursuant to NCGS 9096. Mr. Saldana did successfully complete the requirements of the agreement, including a year on supervised probation. And the agreement, or uh, the charge against him was dismissed in 2006. Mr. Saldana took what he understood to be his clean slate, and for the next more than 15 years, he built his life here, um, working, living with his wife, raising three children, and becoming an excellent candidate for cancellation of removal and lawful permanent resident status. And for those more than 15 years, the benefit of the bargain that he thought he had gotten, a clean slate, proved true. However, in 2021, Mr. Saldana's dismissed charge came back to haunt him. The plea underlying this motion became the basis for deportation proceedings, resulting in his mandatory detention in an ICE facility in Georgia. Mr. Saldana filed this motion to withdraw the plea, and in light of the factors our Supreme Court laid out in State versus Handy, Mr. Saldana's motion should have been allowed under either the fair and just reason standard or the manifest injustice standard. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions that the panel has, otherwise I'll just dive right into those, those Handy factors. Um, in, the, in State versus Handy, our Supreme Court gave a list of non-exclusive factors by which to decide whether to allow a defendant to withdraw their plea. Um, and essentially, a person should be allowed, when that's pre-sentence, to do so when it's more than buyer's remorse and when the state will not be unduly prejudiced. And this is an analysis that we engage in on a case-by-case -case basis, um, and here in this case, withdrawal should have been allowed. It um, seems as though you and the state disagree as whether this was pre-sentencing or post-sentencing. Although he was, um, he did get the benefit of a 9096 uh, conditional discharge. He was, in fact, placed on probation and had to perform some tasks in order to get that conditional discharge. Would you, uh, how do you align your, um, your position with the state? Yes, a, a conditional discharge or a plea under 9096 is sort of a unique animal, a creation of statutory authority um, that specifically says um, there's going to be no adjudication of guilt 
And if you look at, for example, the order that's entered um, to enter this agreement, that's at record page nine, it's entitled order. It's not a title entitled judgment and commitment. It's not entitled sentence. It's not in child entitled adjudication of guilt, anything like that. It's just an order. And within that order, it says, here are some conditions. This is sort of a statutory chance at grace. Um, that if you fail, then sentence will be entered and a judgment will be entered. Um, I think that language suggests that this unique statutory issue uh, means that the status of this case is pre-sentence. And I know the state talks a little bit about how there's gonna be this, this floodgate problem if we consider 9096 please um, pre-sentencing forever. But I think, first of all, the fact that this is the first case of its kind to my knowledge, to come before this court suggests otherwise. But also, um, 1996 pleas are, are relatively rare if we think about there has to be an offer of a 1996 plea, someone has to accept it, someone has to be a non-resident for this it to matter in this way, um, someone has to successfully complete the terms of that 1996 agreement. And then there's also this issue of um, the sentence or the prejudice considerations in this case. I think this case is unique because Mr. Saldana, excuse me, um, he, one of the conditions of the agreement was that he serve a year on supervised probation. And this wasn't a case where he, um, as part of the plea agreement, had the top charge dismissed. He pled to the top charge, which was a class I felony. And under the, the sentencing guidelines in place for a crime that happened before December 1st of 2003, um, the punishment that a person would get who went to trial and was found guilty of a class I felony with a prior record level of one was a suspended sentence, a community sentence of probation um, of 12 to 30 years. There's almost no gap there. Um, the state got what it bargained for in this case. It got a year of supervised probation that was success successfully completed by Mr. Saldana. He took the required drug class. He paid the required fines and fees. And, and had he gone to trial, he would have essentially got the same thing except for a felony conviction. So it sort of makes sense that he chose to enter this plea with the understanding that there wasn't going to be a conviction and there wasn't gonna be felony consequences. Otherwise, it would have been completely reasonable for someone whose primary consideration is staying in this country to roll the dice, go to trial, knowing that the, if he had gone to trial and lost, what he would have gotten was essentially the same thing or very little difference. Well, he has to sign a form in order to get the 9096, right? Saying he's going to follow the terms and conditions he of did. the 9096. And in that form, doesn't it specifically put him on notice, specifically that he has the right, you know, that he has the right to plead not guilty, be tried by a jury, and if he was not a citizen of the United States, his plea of guilty may result in deportation, the exclusion from admission to the country, or the denial of naturalization under federal law. Isn't that on the form that he signed? Yes, that's absolutely on the form. Um, and the language in there, the conditional language of may, um, have immigration consequences is simply inaccurate in this context. Since at least 1996, when the um, Omnibus Immigration Act was passed. Um, it has not been a question of may be deported or removable. Once you enter a plea or some sort of admission of guilt to a drug felony, you are automatically removable. That immediately changes your status to removable. But the government may remove you, right? 
just because you're eligible for removal doesn't mean that the government will or deport, deportation doesn't mean that the government will deport you. The government may. Certainly different administrations and different policy choices and factors um, in enforcement vary over time. However, a person's legal status, I think, does is very clear and um, does change immediately upon entry of a plea. I guess it's the context of May from, from Mr. Saldano's perspective. You would likely argue that the fact that he may be removed, that's, that's a fiction because he is eligible for deportation upon the plea. From the government's perspective, the may may very well mean, may very well mean we may remove you if we choose to enforce the action. So you could read it both ways is what I'm saying. Well, I, I guess our, the United States Supreme Court in Padilla and, and this court um, in Nakiam have said that removal is a virtual certainty in these cases. So it, it's class drug cases with drugs like this case and then also Nakiam was an aggravated, uh, an aggravated crime that's defined under the, the federal code as something that makes you immediately removable. And the way that they describe the immigration consequences, yes, you may be one of the lucky few, I guess, but the, the general rule is that you will be facing deportation proceedings. Um, Mr. Saldana, by whatever stroke of luck, didn't, didn't come to face that for 15 years. But um, from the time in 2005 when he made this admission, he was removable. That was a direct immigration consequence that was 100% foreseeable by counsel. And although um, we haven't raised an ineffective assistance of counsel claim in this case because Padilla versus Kentucky is not retroactive, that remedy is not available. But Padilla does say that as of the mid-1990s, um, it was clear that all prevailing professional norms required counsel to advise defendants about the immigration consequences of their pleas. That would, that would be requiring the common criminal defense counsel to be an expert in immigration law, though, and certainly that's not what was intended. I don't think it requires criminal defense counsel to be an immigration expert at all because Padilla does discuss this sort of um, idea that where immigration law is very nuanced and where there's some question about whether you're deportable or removable, um, you don't have to be an expert on those things and more general warnings may be satisfactory. But in, in Padilla, like here, you have a drug conviction and unless it's a personal amount of marijuana, that's the only exception, unless it's that, you are immediately removable. That is a clear thing that is not um, difficult for a criminal defense attorney who's otherwise unfamiliar with the nuances of immigration to, um, to understand. And, and like I said, the prevailing professional norms since the mid-1990s have required that. Um, and I think here it's clear that not only did did counsel not advise Mr. Saldana? He did advise him, and he advised him incorrectly. So it was an, an affirmative misstatement. You, Mr. Saldana, absolutely does not have a clean slate. It's not as if once he entered this plea, he has no and successfully completed the terms of the agreement that he has no further consequences. He has an incredibly harsh consequence in that he's forever separated from his family. Mr. Saldana qualifies for an expungement of this, does he not? Um, I am not sure about that, but I do know that federal immigration deportation doesn't consider expungement. Uh, it would still be a conviction for immigration purposes, even if expunged. Um, because it's the plea of guilty that 
is the basis for the removal, not the effects. Because as far as we're concerned, his case has been dismissed. And for North Carolina purposes, he has a clean slate. So is it the guilty plea itself that's the problem? For, for immigration purposes, it, it is the admission of guilt. Um, and even if that is expunged, um, there, are, there is BIA law saying that that still counts as a conviction for purposes of removal. Um, and I guess the other, the other things that I would point to um, are the fact that, um, you know, Mr. Saldana's affidavit is in the record. It's at page 42. He testified that he understood from his lawyer that he would have a clean slate. His wife testified at the motion hearing that that was her understanding as well, and that's supported by the fact that they went to an immigration attorney around the same time um, to try to secure Mr. Saldana legal status because from their point of view, there was no, no block to that, no um, reason that he couldn't have legal status. Um, and I think the language of 9096 itself is confusing. Now, I'm not suggesting I that- I have a question though, but his wife did testify that they'd went to an immigration attorney around the same time that he did the conditional discharge, maybe 2005 or 2006, and was told there could potentially be a problem. Why didn't he try to do anything back then instead of waiting for 15 years or longer? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I could only speculate that, you know, he was living his life raising his children. I'm not sure the answer to that. Um, my understanding was from the transcript that there was and um, some concern, I believe that was right before George W. Bush's second election. Um, so there was, the, it, my understanding from the transcript is that the immigration attorney told them to wait on the results of this election and see if that changes anything. But to be clear, the, the, the law that's relevant in this case has been steady since 1996. You enter an admission of guilt to a drug felony and you are immediately removable. And the fact that that wasn't, um, that wasn't told to Mr. Saldana means that this plea was not entered knowingly um, and voluntarily, which is the is sort of the one thing that various jurisdictions agree raises, rises to the level of manifest injustice, but but certainly sat, satisfies the any fair and just um, rule here. You were going to discuss the language of 9096. Yes, I think. Um, the language of 9096 uh, specifically states that um, dismissal shall be done without an adjudication of guilt, but then it goes on to say that a 9096 agreement should not be deemed a conviction for purposes of this section or for purposes or disqualifications of disabilities imposed by law. And I think there's this um, lack of, con um, there's this disconnect between federal immigration law and the, la the law of 9096. So, Again, we're not raising an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, but it's easy to see why Mr. Saldana would have gotten um, inaccurate and misleading information when you're looking at the language of 1996. Um, and, and I do think that that does go to the factor, the handy factor of competent counsel. Um, again, not an IAC claim here, but that is one of the factors that we consider under the totality of the circumstances. So that, in addition to the um, confusion and the misunderstanding of the consequences of the plea here um, are, are sort of the key factors, I think, in Mr. Saldana's favor of the motion to withdraw. And then the other things I wanted to address uh, is the, t the timing of the plea and the motion to withdraw. Obviously, this case is unusual and different. Most of these motion to withdraw pleas cases happen 
you know, within a minute, within a day, within a month, within six months. This has been over a decade, right? But, um, and there certainly is case law that's saying that that's something that this court should consider when determining whether a motion to withdraw is appropriate. But I think it's important to look at the rationale behind that general statement. Um, the cases talk about finality um, in terms of, say, you don't want someone who has a 50-year sentence, 20 years into that sentence, to be like, this is too long, I can't finish it, I don't want to do it, and have what the courts have called buyer's remorse. This isn't that case. Mr. Saldana thought that his case would be fully dismissed, and for more than 15 years, he thought that's what would happen. He, he got what he thought he pled to what he wanted, and he thought, in fact, because of circumstance, that that's what he had gotten, um, that he'd be returned to square one. And I think if um, this court's decision in Lankford kind of gives you the flexibility to look at the, the underlying circumstances, in, in, um, and it talks about how longer delays can be excusable when they result from um, what the court called erroneous expectations. And I think we've discussed how Mr. Saldana absolutely had erroneous expectations here based on the advice of counsel, the plea transcript. Um, and essentially there was no reason for Mr. Saldana to, to move to withdraw this plea because he thought he had gotten what he wanted. Um, for lack of a better term, his claim didn't become ripe until he was picked up by ICE in 2021. He didn't realize he had this hanging over his head. So in that way, this is very different from other cases where people just get into their sentence and decide they don't like it um, and have that sort of buyer's remorse. There's no reason that it should be held against him um, under the circumstances of this case. And then the last handy factor I'd like to touch on um, before I sit down is the lack of prejudice to the state in this case. Um, Mr. Saldana has the burden on his motion to make out a prima facie case without, with regard to the factors that we discussed, but the state... Once it shifts, um, the state does uh, need to show what Handy calls concrete prejudice. And it, um, here the state has only offered speculative prejudice. It's at pages 19 and 20 of their brief. Um, and, I, and if I could, I'd just like to go through the three things that they cited briefly. Um, first was the possibility that Mr. Saldana could get another 9096 plea, which I think the state calls absurd. Um, first, there, there is a provision in 9096 that um, by agreement of the prosecutor and the court um, with written findings. You can not offer someone another 90, or A9096 if it's inappropriate. But more importantly, I think Mr. Saldana simply wouldn't want a 9096 plea if he was fully informed about the consequences and understood the consequences of a plea. There's no reason that he wouldn't, um, why he would accept this knowing what the immigration consequences actually are of a 9096 plea. Um, the second prejudice the state talks about is that several charges were dismissed. Just factually, those were misdemeanor marijuana possession and possession of rolling paper, drug paraphernalia. Um, so this isn't a case, again, where the top charge was dismissed for plea to a lower charge. Um, as I mentioned, the highest sentence he could have gotten had he gone to trial and lost was also community punishment. Um, the state's sort of not missing out um, on, a, an, on a large sentence or something like that. Um, and then the third thing that the state talks about is that they would almost certainly lose the opportunity to pursue justice on those charges. Um, and again, to be clear, the state did get everything that it bargained for here. Um, Mr. Saldana was on a year of supervised probation, took the classes, paid the fine, paid the fees, did all of that successfully. So 
Um, none of the state's arguments about prejudice constitute the concrete prejudice that's required by Handy. Um, and even if this court did find that those were um, instances of concrete prejudice, in comparison to an unknowing and involuntary plea that results in deportation and permanent separation from his family, um, any weight that this factor has is de minimis. So if, if Mr. Saldano, if, if we agree with you and we say, okay, he should be allowed to withdraw his plea, that puts him back in the situation he was in before he entered his plea. Right. Um, so now he has a dismissal. If he's back in those same shoes and he gets another dismissal, how does that change the factually from for federal immigration purposes, the fact that he did in fact enter a guilty plea to a crime? I mean, why is one dismissal better than the other is, is the question, I guess. Well, if he's allowed to withdraw the, the plea, there will be no admission of guilt, assuming that the second dismissal that you talk about is not a, a 1996 plea, it's just a dismissal by the prosecutor voluntary dismissal is that is that your question but I don't know what the prosecutor would do there's four ways to accomplish the goal that could have been used as far as I know one is an informal deferred right do these things will dismiss your charge there's no contract Two, a contractual deferred with the DA's office where it's in writing where you make an allocution uh, three is a 15 a 540 1541 and then the 9096 so there's four ways to accomplish this this is the one that was chosen that and then the 15A, 15, uh, 1341 would probably end up with the same result. Right, I, I think the key difference, as Judge Wood mentioned earlier, is whether there, there's an admission of guilt. For immigration purposes, that's the key. So if it's a deferred prosecution informally um, where there's no admission of guilt, I, my understanding is for immigration purposes, it, it would not constitute a conviction. Uh, but in the instances, like under 1996, and I'm less familiar with the other options, I apologize. If there is an admission to guilt, I think that's the key factor. So I, I guess, logically speaking, my question is this. He entered in 1996, he got the dismissal. He's eligible for an expungement, but immigration says doesn't matter if you get it expunged, we're still gonna consider that as an admission of guilt. Mm -hmm. If his plea is withdrawn, why would immigration still not say, but you admitted guilt? How, did, how is this better than an expungement? I, I, see, I think I see what you're asking. Um, I, it's because this plea essentially isn't knowing involuntary. It's not a plea. I think immigration would say, you know, this admission was made under circumstances that make it completely null and invalid, and for that reason, we won't consider it. There's a legal basis for withdrawal here. We won't consider it. Yeah, and it, but that's the chance you're taking, right, that, that immigration will agree with you. You've got to get us to agree with you. You've got to get the state to enter a dismissal, and then you've got to get immigration to agree with you. That's right. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And now we'll hear from the appellee from the state. Good morning, Your Honors. My name is Caden Hayes. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I am representing the state in this matter. Your Honors, over 18 years ago, defendant pled guilty pursuant to 1996 to felony possession of cocaine. The state, for its part, dismissed several related misdemeanors. I want to make a point of clarification on the factual record as uh, my, my opponent laid out. 
The defendant here was removable before the offense, during the offense, after the offense. He was an undocumented immigrant and could have been removed at any time. The reason we are here today is because they didn't do that and he couldn't stop the immigration deportation partly because of these charges. And so just now going back to this um, 2005 in February where the defendant entered his plea, the trial court imposed several conditions that we typically see in a sentence including supervised probation, a fine, community service, etc. <clears throat> he fulfilled those obligations and so in 2006 the case was dismissed and then nothing happened on this case for 15 years until 2022 when defendant moved to withdraw his plea not because he was innocent or that there was a flaw in the state's case or that his, his counsel was incompetent, but that because there were these immigration issues that popped up in 2022 that he drew a line back to, or, or he attempted to draw a line back to. Um, uh, that underlying merits uh, deserves a lot of discussion, but I want to address two procedural points first. One, there is this outstanding question of whether this was post or pre-judgment as used in handy. There is really no, I would argue, no doubt that there has been a judgment considered on February of 2006. There was nothing more the court would do. Its judgment was dismissal. Section 9096 itself says that it, that is final for purposes of appeal. And Section 7A27 says that you can only appeal in a criminal matter when there has been a final judgment. That was the judgment. As a consequence, he has to file a motion for appropriate relief to receive well, relief in this court. And while the um, technicalities of the MAR were satisfied, there's an important element that was not. Section 1415 sub B requires a, says that a defendant may only raise certain enumerated claims more than 10 days after entry of judgment. I believe the word is verdict, but they, the statute itself seems to interpose verdict, judgment, sentence all over. But for purposes, it appears of handy that means judgment. Nonetheless, withdrawal of plea without a constitutional hook is not on that list. Defendant cannot raise this claim, pure and simple, and that was what the trial court originally recognized in its order. It contains several alternative findings, but its first one was, you have not alleged any violation of 1415B. And so, um, this should be dismissed outright, because second, because it's an MAR, the defendant needed to obtain certiorari. And of course, there is a pending petition in front of this court, um, uh, but first there's the issue with the enumerated uh, claims to relief, and as we'll be discussing in a second, the merits issue, that certiorari petition should be denied. So this is post-judgment, and so we move on to the next question, which is pre- or post-sentencing. Defendant in their briefs just says there's been no sentence, and uses these kind of um, almost magical words, these talismanic words of sentence, Structured Sentencing Act, only this. There must be the word, order, or judgment on the same document. But that's not what Handy stood for. This court recognized in Langford that Handy is not so formulaic in that way. There is these three rationales undergirding the idea of Handy. One being that there was the defendant is viewing the plea as a tactical mistake, which I think we can make no doubt that he views this as a tactical mistake given the current immigration status. Two, there's the question of whether the state has performed its obligations under the plea agreement, which it did in February of 2005. And three, the question of finality here. It again has been 18 years since defendant pled guilty and it's been 16 years since 
or 17 years, I apologize, since the court dismissed the charges. And so under the rationale of Langford, under the rationale of Handy, we had a sentence the moment the trial court imposed the, the, the conditions of the 1996. All three of those factors were met right then. There didn't need to be a document from, from Structured Sentencing Act or a sentencing hearing. None of that's required as, as Langford made clear. Mr. Hayes, your, your position is that the judgment was the dismissal, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, and your position is that the sentencing was the imposition of the things that he had to do. So the sentencing came before the judgment? That is correct, Your Honor, in this unique, weird circumstance. <clears throat> Typically in structured sentencing, I know 15A101 says that judgment occurs when sentencing is imposed, but that only defines the kind of, again, structured sentencing, which we're far outside of in this kind of circumstance. And so, Handy doesn't say they have to be the same date. No precedent that I could find said they had to be the same date. And it makes sense, just guided by the case law. Langford says these three rationales of Handy, that happened in February of 2005. 9096 says that the 2006 dismissal was final for purposes of appeal, so that must be the judgment. So we have a... So under your theory, it seems as though a defendant could theoretically be sentenced twice then for the same crime. Once under 9096, certain terms and conditions that would lead to a dismissal if the defendant doesn't comply with them, then the defendant is returned to court for imposition of a sentence. So, which could either be a imprisonment or another probationary sentence. So it seems as though you're advocating for two sentences for the same crime? Your Honor, I think this stems down to the Supreme Court's use of the word sentence. There is sentence as used in handy, as used in that analysis, which is different than sentence as an absolute figure in our statutory structured sentencing act. Um, there is a sentence, I'm gonna use quotation marks for lack of a, a better delineation, but there's a sentence on handy in February of 2005. Should he have failed any of those conditions, there would have been a sentence under the Structured Sentencing Act in February of 2006. So the short answer to your question, Your Honor, is yes, but not in a way that might offend double jeopardy or any of the other constitutional provisions. Um, so we have a post-judgment, we have a post-sentencing. So we're left with a manifest injustice standard. Um, and. Uh, We've talked about this a lot in the briefing and today, but those are the handy factors. They don't change, um, they are, uh, they just, the burden of proof changes. Um, and I wanna make a quick note, handy says that the factors it lays out are a non-exhaustive list, um, but defendant doesn't point to any other factors that might be applicable here or explain that, so I'm gonna limit my discussion to the five handy factors laid out in the case itself, which is gonna be um, the defendant's declaration of innocence, whether he points to any flaws in the state's case, whether he had competent counsel, the how long it's been since the trial court imposed, or sorry, the defendant uh, entered his guilty plea, and whether there was any misunderstanding, haste, or confusion in the entry of the plea. As I mentioned at the top, defendant doesn't claim innocence. He doesn't say the state had a weak case. He expressly does not argue ineffective assistance of counsel. It's been 18 years since entry of plea, and so we're left with this last prong, the misunderstanding haste. And the reality is he signed a plea transcript, whereas I think Judge Wood, you pointed out earlier that it said you may have immigration consequences as a, as a result of this. And he said yes, he understood that. And just because the immigration per, uh, consequences didn't come out for 18, 17 years, 
does not change the fact that he acknowledged this risk. And so he needs to present under Ager a clear and convincing evidence that that was, that was wrong. He truly didn't understand. And he doesn't really provide one other than the general platitudes of, I thought I had a clean slate. And for purposes of North Carolina law, he does, but I guess the federal law defines it differently. That's something that neither the state nor this court can change. And so we're left in this um, question of does that clean slate equate to manifest injustice when he hasn't claimed innocence or any of the other factors? And the answer is no. Uh, defendant nonetheless cites Padilla in support for the idea that um, despite the fact it's not retroactive, that it would have bearing on this case. I, and I want to make a couple of clarifications about Padilla. Most notably on page uh, 366 of the reporter, there is, um, uh, the Supreme Court says deportation is a consequence of a criminal conviction, but it's uniquely difficult to classify as either a direct or collateral consequence, which is an important analysis when we're talking in the handy question. Um, because only direct consequences apply as this court reiterated in Marshburn. Indirect consequences are irrelevant. However, Padilla, in the unique context of ineffective assistance, said we not need to draw that line, we're just going to consider both of them. So as a, it, it seemed, Padilla undergirds or under, undermines the defendant's position, um, notwithstanding its, its ultimate holding. And the second thing with Padilla is Padilla even says that only when um, on 369 of the reporter, when the law is not, quote, succinct and straightforward, which I think we can say this was at the time not succinct and straightforward, the Fourth Circuit didn't really affirmatively say definitely going to be a, uh, going to be a criminal conviction under immigration law until 2018. Um, a criminal defense attorney need no more than advise a non-citizen client that pending criminal charges may carry a risk of adverse immigration consequences, which is exactly what the plea transcript iterated to the defendant here. There may have been a consequence. So Padilla just doesn't help the defendant's case here. If anything, it undermines it. We have um, an unclear, at the time, uh, potential immigration problem. Um, and Marshburn reiterates that. And this court in Marshburn was dealing with a defendant who, at the time he was in state court, he was also in a kind of parallel federal proceeding. And he pled guilty in the state court, and he got a prayer for judgment continued, and he thought that that wouldn't count for federal criminal purposes, sentencing purposes. As it turns out, federal court disagreed and did count it, and now he wished to withdraw. And this court said that was a collateral or an indirect consequence and is thus irrelevant. Marshburn reiterated that a direct consequence is one having a, quote, definite, immediate, and largely automatic effect on the range of the defendant's punishment. That is it. That is the only consequences that Handy says this court must look at. And we have, it certainly was not definite, as I mentioned earlier, the Fourth Circuit didn't definitively rule on this until 2017-2018. It certainly wasn't immediate, given we are here 18 years later, and it definitely was not automatic. And I want to, on that note, also make a clarification. Um, defendant is, in his motion below, asked uh, for an I-601A waiver. Um, according to defendant, because I will admit I am not an immigration attorney, according to defendant, he needed to satisfy several conditions in order to halt the deportation proceedings. One of which was, of course, not having 
been convicted of a disqualifying offense, which is the reason we're here, but also you must have established that removal presents exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a family member who is a citizen or lawful permanent resident of the United States. At the time, the defendant pled guilty in February 2005. He was newly married, he had no kids, we have no idea how long he was in the United States before then. At least it's not in the record. So it's unclear if uh, immigration officials had picked him up the day after he pled guilty if he could have stopped it. The only reason he has a chance to stop it now is because in the intervening decade and a half, he had several kids and it appears according to the record that some of them may have some mental issues that he needs to, uh, according to the defendant, be around for. So this just simply cannot be a direct consequence when you have so many intervening steps from the defendant, from the federal government, in order to reach this where this even becomes an issue at all, for this us to even get here 18 years later. And so um, this, is, this is not a direct consequence. But even if it was a direct consequence, we still have the issue of the plea agreement, where he said there may be immigration consequences. And so he doesn't present any real evidence to rebut this beyond the general, as I mentioned earlier, um, clean slate language. But that's not enough under Eger to rebut this, uh, the, the presumption of knowledge in 2005. It is, um, it's just not enough for, it's not clear and convincing. Um, and even if we were to uh, move past this. Let's say this is a direct consequence. Let's say this is a misunderstanding of that direct consequence as used in handy. It, it doesn't outweigh the prior four factors, which defendant doesn't even contest here or below. Um, and so we're left with uh, it, it, the balancing test just doesn't weigh out that way. Um, and even if we move past that and we say the defendant has established a manifest injustice, using that one prong and that one prong alone, he, the state would indeed um, encounter substantial prejudice. Um, as Your Honor, Judge Carpenter pointed out, if the defendant was to withdraw this plea, we would be back at square one in a theoretical world with these charges pending. Almost certainly, the state would not be able to proceed on any of those prosecutions. Um, and uh, that was admitted below by the defendant, and I think the court even remarked that as well. And as a practical purpose, it's just not possible. And Marshburn says that uh, the destruction of evidence or the death of a witness is substantial prejudice to the state. Um, the, the state has an interest in uh, pursuing justice and ensuring that uh, criminal acts are, are punished according to statutory authority. Um, and this leads me to the final thing, which is should defendant be able to undo this plea? And should the defendant be able to get back into the United States through legal means, um, whatever that may be, he would then theoretically be eligible for a 9096 again. He could. I'm not saying he would, but, but as a matter of, of, of it, it, it goes against the kind of policy concerns undergirding 9096, which is just this is a one-off thing. This is your first time offense, but now he'll get it a second time, uh, a unique thing that most defendants don't get. Uh, and as a, as a final note, I want to address defendants, um, I think calls the state's sky is falling uh, analysis. This case, though it presents weird and unique facts, is not weird and unique in its application of law. If defendant can point to, despite having a plea agreement to the contrary, they had a misunderstanding of a consequence, be it immigration or be it any other consequence, 
and they can then pull back their plea 20 years later. It can. Wiley defendants may realize that, hey, it's been 20 years. There's no way the state could prosecute me again. Here's a collateral consequence that I'm pretty annoyed that I have to deal with. I'm going to try and get it out. And in theory, should you rule for the defendant today, that, that case law would arguably support that position. So it's, it's not this kind of sky is falling scenario that the defendant points out. It's, it's a real and tangible thing that most definitely could occur should the defendant um, succeed here today. Your Honors, this is an um, interesting case. It is um, unique in its facts. However, it's by and large a routine application of firmly established precedent, Langford, Marshburn, and Handy. The defendant's position about sentencing, about judgment, that it never was either and it never will, um, is it, it almost offends the idea of finality and important consideration in any criminal justice system. There has to be a date somewhere. And even if this court were to disagree with the, with the state's position about the difference in sentencing and judgment dates, pick the 2006 date. It doesn't matter for purposes of this analysis. Defendant is still 16 years past that date. We have to have an end. Criminal justice says so in general. And so that date works. It complies with precedent. And it should be adopted here today. And your honors, given the, the proper and weighty standard of manifest injustice, defendant has not met his burden. And um, unless your honors have any further questions, uh, this court should therefore affirm the trial court below. I got some questions. Yes, Your Honor. So, uh, the state and the defendant, in the, Mr. Saldana in this case, <clears throat> entered into an agreement. Mr. Saldana would do certain things, uh, substance abuse, be on probation for a year, all the things the state agreed that it would dismiss if he completed those things. Both sides held up their, their part of the deal. The form says there may be immigration consequences. That was not the intent of the state. The state didn't come in and say, do these things, we're gonna dismiss it, and oh yeah, by the way, as part of this deal, we're gonna put you in a position so, now we're negotiating this, we're gonna put you in a position so you may be deported later. That wasn't of concern of the two parties that were engaging in the negotiation. Would you agree with that? That's correct, Your Honor. It, it just happened to be there's this federal law thing, so we're going to stick the language in the form to, to advise that there may be some consequences. DAs aren't experts in immigration law, neither are, presumably, neither was this criminal defense lawyer. Um, <clears throat> just raising the issue. Yeah, and that's correct, Your Honor. <clears throat> it is. Um, uh, the, the operative immigration statute was passed in 1996, 1997, and it was subject to intense uh, analysis, and every new administration through Chevron doctrine could interpret that differently, and, and it's hard to nail down what the immigration consequences were, and Padilla kind of provides that escape hatch in a sense of advise, as in here, um, that there is a may be immigration consequences because, uh, like you said, Your Honor, None of us are, are immigration experts. That's well, at the field. time, we didn't know whether a 9096 would count for immigration purposes. As you said, the Fourth Circuit didn't decide that until 2018. That's correct, Your Honor. Yeah, in <coughs> 2011 and 2000, or around 2012, the Fourth Circuit had in, uh, different facts, but still a conditional type of discharge, uh, that it was not a consequence. Um, and so this law was very unsettled, uh, and I think the amicus points to a BII, BIA case 
but Fourth Circuit authority supersedes any BIA uh, analysis in the uh, Fourth Circuit District. So it's just, it was an unclear thing. And the best that the, the parties could do in good faith was to say, there may be immigration consequences, period. And that's it. That's, that's all the state was needing to do. That was all that needed to happen. And that's before discussing the incredible amount of time that has elapsed since that date, which is an important factor in this analysis. I, I don't think um, defendant pointed to a single case where there has been more than even 10 years since a guilty plea was allowed to be withdrawn, much less 17 or 18 as in this case. So I ask that question to get to this question. You mentioned the state's inability to, to go back and prosecute the case. Now, the state's kind of already got its pound of flesh. It got what it bargained for, as Ms. Ryder said. Um, it would be doubtful, I would think, DA's exercise their discretion for sure, be doubtful that they would re-prosecute the case as a, as a full-blown trial at this point, given that they've already bargained for an outcome, received the outcome. That's kind of like getting the benefit of your bargain and then suing for, for getting the benefit of your bargain. I think, Your Honor, there is a, there is a perhaps nuanced but important distinction there. Yes, the trial of the state did get its quote-unquote pound of flesh, but as part of it, it was the defendant got his one-off on a 90-96, the one time he could get it. And should the, this court order his guilty plea be vacated, of course the trial court or the, the state would likely not be able to prosecute on the two dismissals, but it would also lose the, the quote-unquote pound of flesh, that being the kind of one time you can use a 90-96, that you can only use it once. And defendants coming back and... I, I told Ms. Wright, there's four ways to do that. <laughs> I used to do this for a living. There's four ways to do that. There's a way, there's a back door around the 1996. You've got uh, 15A, 1341 options under certain circumstances. You've always got the formal and informal deals with the DA's office to, to work around that. So I'm not sure that losing that one opportunity is certainly technically true, but in, in, uh, in actuality how it works, probably not so much. Well, Your Honor, yes, there are multiple ways that, you know, a DA is given wide authority under our Constitution to issue plea agreements or all sorts of other uh, agreements with the defendant. But 1996 is one of them, and the operation of law is an important consideration of the state, and ensuring that it is followed correctly, such as with one time, one perhaps he could get another through another avenue, one of the other three, as Your Honor pointed out, um, but that's still one, and that's an important um, aspect and a concern of the state is the, is the uh, adherence to um, those statutory provisions. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Any other questions? Thank you, Counsel. Hear rebuttal. Um, I'll just touch on a few of the procedural arguments that were made first. Um, first, regarding whether this is a, a MAR or post-motion um, post judgment, I think um, if we just look at the language in Dickens and Handy, um, our Supreme Court has clearly contemplated that a motion to withdraw a plea can be made post-sentence or post-judgment should this court determine that this is, in fact, post-sentence or post-judgment. Um, this court has also um, interpreted appellate arguments not raised in an actual form MAR, but um, just raised in direct appeal as an MAR under the standard in both Shropshire and Zubania. Um, well, this is, a, in fact, an MAR as the trial court 
treated it, then your client doesn't have the right of direct appeal, which is why I presume you filed your petition for writ of cert and you allege some meritorious defense. And what is your meritorious defense? Um, I'm sorry, if I'm understanding your question. I, I, it, or meritorious claim. I, I see. Um, so the meritorious claim is that um, this motion to withdraw the plea should be granted based on the handy factors that we've discussed. Um, and in terms of the right to direct appeal, I think um, NCGS 15A 1444 subsection E is unequivocal that there is a right to appeal a motion to withdraw that has been denied. Um, our Supreme Court said that in Dickens. It's not been overturned. Um, this court said it in Salvetti. They interpreted the, the appeal of the issue, the denial of a motion to withdraw as a MAR, but also recognized the statutory right to appeal um, here. And 15A 1444E doesn't limit it in terms of time when this motion is made. It says, um, in Dickens, this court read it to say a withdrawal plea or no, um, when a motion to withdraw a plea of guilty or no contest has been denied, the defendant is entitled to appellate review as a matter of right. I don't think there's any ambiguity in that statute. And I, as I said, the Supreme Court did it in Dickens and Handy. This court's done it at least in Shropshire and Zubania. Um, but yes, Your Honor, I did file a petition for writ of certiorari out of an abundance of caution um, and, and asked that if this court finds that um, it needs that to review that case, this case, that it do so. Um, with regard to whether this is pre-sentence, pre-judgment, post-sentence, post-judgment, um, I think, Judge Wood, it, your discussion about entering two judgments in a single case um, makes, a, makes a lot of sense and shows why the plain language of the order that's used in this case um, shows how this isn't a judgment or a sentence. Um, counsel, uh, opposing counsel agrees that 9096 is just this strange animal. It doesn't fit neatly into any of these boxes, but I do think that um, one of the well-established principles of our law is that you can't be sentenced twice for the same crime. This is a statutory um, creation that allows this weird limbo for a person to show that they can, they can do what they need to do and essentially have another chance. Um, and then just turning to the merits, um, in talking about the plea transcript, I will note that the plea transcript, the written plea transcript itself is not required by statute, but um, uh, it is required by statute for a trial court to ensure that a plea is knowing and voluntary and then that, that must be done on the record. So I think when you're looking at a written plea transcript form, if counsel doesn't know what the immigration consequences are and can't explain it to his client, if the court's not pointing out what the actual immigration consequences are, what that means here, then the, the written plea transcript itself is, is frankly somewhat meaningless uh, well, in this context. the state brings up a great argument. Your client is an undocumented immigrant, so he was subject to deportation even prior to the entry of this plea. So if he was subject to deportation prior to the entry of this plea, wouldn't it then follow that at the time the acknowledgement that he could be deported didn't really mean anything to him because he was already subject to removal because he was undocumented? Um, I, I probably said that inartfully. When I said removal, it's essentially shorthand for um, disqualifying for cancellation of removal, um, which doesn't roll off the tongue that well. But um, in that moment, entry of that plea changed his status from being arguably eligible for cancellation of removal 
um, to not being eligible. And, and just on a, a factual point on that, what opposing counsel said, in, in November of 2004, um, Mr. Saldana was actually married and had a child, um, a dependent child. So uh, his oldest child was born in November 2004. Um, and so there were circumstances. His wife was dependent upon him. She is, um, she has a disability and is unable to work. Um, and those factors were absolutely present there. So, but for this 1996 plea, um, and immediately prior to acceptance of this 1996 plea, um, he, he had a different status in that, yes, he was eligible for removal because he was here unlawfully, but he was also eligible for this cancellation of removal um, that the AG can, can provide. Um, I also just want to touch briefly on Marshburn. Um, I think that it's just an inapt comparator in this case because it's not about immigration and there is so much law talking about how tightly intertwined immigration law and criminal law are here and how um, one of the distinctions they made in Marshburn was that the consequence was in a whole different criminal case and so it's not direct. Um, but what our United States Supreme Court did in Padilla was get rid of this sort of difference between direct and collateral consequences as it applies to immigration. Um, Padilla, I don't think, could be any clearer that when you know um, a consequence of entering a plea to a drug felony, which is a clear stat state of law, it's not, not something that's in question or was in question in 1996 or 1998, um, you have an obligation to advise your client of that. Um, I would respectfully disagree that it was not not clear that a 1996 was a conviction for immigration purposes at that time. Um, for example, in 1998, the, the BIA decision in, in Repunu, P-U-N-U, um, discusses how a conditional discharge does qualify as a conviction for purposes of, of deportation. Um, but even if um, there was a question about that, I think when you're entering a 1996 and if on the chance that you don't successfully complete the terms of it, the outcome is is a, a sentence, a judgment. And so as a defense attorney, you have to sort of look down the line and are obligated to discuss and advise your client about um, those immediate consequences um, that are at issue. Um, and I would also point out, um, counsel says this doesn't rise to the level of clear and convincing. I think the case that opposing counsel cited was a constitutional case, but, and I don't think it has to rise to clear and convincing, but even if it does, the testimony at the motion was unrebutted. Um, and I would just finally point out that the arguments about finality all specify that we're worried about the finality of judgments that are entered knowingly and voluntarily. And here, Mr. Saldana had no clue what the dire consequences of this plea were going to be and um, would respectfully ask that this court allow him to withdraw that plea. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, um, everyone, for your excellent arguments. The matter is now uh, with the court, and uh, we are adjourned. All right.